It's good to see you all. Um, yeah, just to reinforce, it will be helpful for us uh, if you let us know for the services coming up, which one, I think we'll come to this one. It just gives us a gauge so we can plan. So I encourage you, even if you didn't get a chance to text that during the sermon, uh, during the service, well, during the announcements, man, I am struggling as much as Rob. Um, <laughs> do that, it'd be great. I'm, uh, this kind of conversation probably did not happen during the first century, but I'm kind of envisioning a conversation between two neighbors, you know, like 70 AD. And uh, one of the neighbors is like super impressed with Rome and all the things that Rome had and the statues and the temples, because at any time, uh, the Roman centurions might show up to your town for a surprise visit to make sure you're all dialed into who you are. Maybe your neighbor is somebody who's starting to be interested in Jesus. So you have a little conversation with them. So the neighbor's like, so who is this Jesus guy? And you're like, well, he went around doing all these amazing things, loving people, standing up to those who were oppressing others. And the neighbor goes, so what, what happened to him? Well, he was killed. Well, who killed him? Well, the Romans killed him. Hmm. So, this empire that we're all in, the Roman Empire, they were impressed with all the things that they have, killed your leader. Seems to me like this empire might be a little bit stronger than your leader. So your response is, well, he did raise from the dead. Hmm. Okay, I guess that's impressive. But where's his temple? Where's his statues? Where are the things that show us his power? And all you can say is, well, his temple is, you're, you're, you're looking at it. Okay. Well, didn't just answer me this one question. Who has Jesus really conquered? And your answer is, well, he just conquers your heart. He wins you over. See, the society and the things with how they were when Jesus came to this earth was during a time of oppressive regime. A time where you would look at the things around you and be like, they gotta be more powerful than God. And there's these questions that kept coming up to him. What are you doing? Where are you from? And this remains the ongoing wonder of people as we go, man, how does Jesus really help me today? And we can all get there, even those of us who come to church, because when things are really hard and difficult, how is he helping me today? In this season of Advent, though it brings this joy and this anticipation and it's kind of like the sweetness, it's really a subversive thing. You see, though it is seen as a time of peace and hope, Advent actually is a blatant resistance to something else. This season confronts the cynical corrosion of the heart with the insistence that God has not given up and has certainly not abandoned the world. It shows us that hope is real and something good is coming. Advent charges into the temple of cynicism with a whip of hope, overturning tables of despair, announcing there is a new day and it is not like the old day. You see, that's the real beauty of Advent. 
And as we take some time this morning and talk about Advent a little bit, it is not just this passive stance, but it is a sign of resistance against that which you see so that you will know him. Let's pray. God, thank you for a new morning, a chance to be together. Father, I pray through our few minutes today that you will speak to us. God, I know, I know because I've had conversations with some in our church family this past week, life is really, really hard for them right now and hurtful. Speak to them. Give them the tangible piece of your incarnational presence today, God. For those who are rejoicing, speak to them. Give them the incarnational presence of you today as they rejoice. We love you. In your name, amen. There's this story about the life of Jesus. Now, some of you might be coming and you're like, it's Christmas almost. Read us Luke chapter 2. We'll get there. So, three-fourths of the way, though, in the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew comes this amazing little story where Two groups of opposite opinion come to try to trick him. Matthew 22, 16 to 22 starts like this. They, the Pharisees, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, stop for a sec. The Herodians is a non-religious governmental group. It's a society, it's a group of people that uh, were supportive of Rome, and supportive of Herod, meaning they, Rome put Herod into place, kind of like this uh, tangible thing for the Jewish people, but it wasn't really that powerful, but they saw that. They were into big government. You support Rome. And then there's the Pharisees. On the other hand, were members of an ancient religious Jewish sect who believed in the strict observance of religious things and then life would get better. So you have this big government group and this group that if you just were morally right, things would get better. And they decided to join forces that even though they were on opposite sides of the group, they both were annoyed with Jesus. So they joined forces to come together to try and trick him. They start with a bit of flattery. We'll go on. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. That you, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Kind of flattery, kind of backhanded. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So if Jesus answered no to the Herodians, they would charge him with treason against Rome. That was their chances to get rid of him. He's annoying. But if he said yes, the Pharisees would then accuse him of disloyalty to the Jewish nation. So they said the crowds would stop following him. So two opposite sides, two ways of viewing this, and they come after Jesus, the incarnational God. This shows us the kind of earthly kingdom and earthly thought that Jesus was born into. Now, it's not exactly the way it is today, but the, how humanity responds to the longing is so like today. You see, this coin that they talked about um, has this image of Caesar. Let me read you what Jesus says. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, says, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? 
Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought to him a denarius and asked him, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. On this coin probably had an image of Caesar and it had a mention to him about his deity that how he said he was God and then his son would be the son of God. You see, the Jewish nation would say that's a bit of idolatry, right? So how is Jesus going to respond? Surely he will take a stance against that. And once again, they were like, will you pay the imperial tax? So whose side are you on? When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's drawing a very sharp distinction between the two kingdoms, earthly kingdom and heavenly kingdom. You see, Jesus is saying, currently there's a kingdom in this world, and Caesar holds power with it. But there's a place that I come from, that I'm the king of that. And everywhere you look, there was like strong physical evidence of this earthly kingdom, and it just seemed like we can never get ahead. And then Jesus shows up, and he's talking about where he's from. You see, where would you stick Jesus? They didn't have a category for him. Some of our struggles is that we try to keep put Jesus in a certain category. Well, this is how I see life, Jesus, so join me in my category for you. And yet Jesus is like, there is not that space. You see, this part of this kingdom that Jesus was born into is shown at the very beginning of the familiar Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. You know this, but let me read it to you. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. The way the world was at that time is that a decree would be made by the government and everybody had to respond. That's the background of the story. It's interesting that Joseph was living in one place and he had a journey back to where he was from, which probably indicates he lost land. An outcast had to go back because he was told. And in that space is where Jesus is born. You see, this physical space and this physical kingdom that Rome had, they were known for something. They were known for the oppressive taxation of the people. Some for their own people, but mostly for those they oppressed. Mostly against those they were ruling. 
Now, one of the things that they would do is they would put some of that taxation money back into their community so they would build roads and kind of make it endurable, at least for a little while. So the people they were oppressing were like, well, it's not really that bad. So they start to settle and just kind of appease things. There was this relative peace, which means they were just weren't at war, though there were massive crucifixions along the way to keep people in line. There was partnerships with local entities, meaning they put Herod in charge of little things, so they may have this appearance like you still have your own people, but not really. And there was a lot of propaganda around a nationalistic theology or an imperialistic theology connecting government to theology, that Caesar was deified after death, and then Augustus, his son, could say, I am the son of God. So when Jesus says, I am the son of God, it was not a new phrase. It was a defiant phrase saying, Caesar's saying this, I'm saying this as well. So you have this, this nation, this oppressive government that Jesus was born into. And then you have this other group of religious people because when there's a longing inside of us, we either try to overcome that longing with more control, human domination, or we kind of create something else where it's a self-protection. And there is a group of people who, after the, the Old Testament had ended, and it's kind of this 400 years before Jesus, where they started to create this religious response. And you may know about this. One is a group of Pharisees that started this. If we just do a little bit extra, God will respond to this. So they made extra laws. And there's this group called the Essence that withdrew in the work systems of the Pharisees. They, they're kind of like monks. And there was another group of Sadducees and priests, the official teachers of the law. And they depended on the favor of Rome, though, to keep them. So it's kind of like a state church kind of feeling like we're still going to have you be in charge of us. And then there was these zealots. Man, the zealots were like, we don't care. We don't care. They had not an organization, but a subculture. They were loyal, but they resisted pagan culture. Simon the Zealot was one of the disciples. But there's these groups of religious existence that in their longing created their own systems. There's a holy longing in all of us that God created. And we try to respond to that longing either through dominance and control or some kind of subculture of religion that protects us. But Jesus steps in and he's like, neither. That kind of blows our mind if you let it because so often we pull Jesus into ours because each of these created cultures that even though they were oppressed, they started oppressing others. Where would you put Jesus? In the mindset of today and the things that we pursue to feed that longing inside of us, where would you put Jesus? See, like so many of us, they saw everything through the lens that they, of their own opinion, their short life experiences, they had these questions that kept challenging Jesus. Where are you from and where are you going? In today's words, we're like, where are you from and what are you going to do with your life? Right? That's what they saw this middle ground guy as and they just were convinced it was going to wear out. 
The questions got more intense, moving from curiosity to challenge to indictment to who do you think you are? Don't you know what's going on around you? This is not helpful. Can't you just go with what's accepted? We see these responses to Jesus sitting in the middle ground throughout Scripture. Even at the very beginning, when he starts to call some of his disciples, we see things like this. John 1, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like a camp, this can't be something. John 7, at some point, at, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him, but have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, and when the Messiah comes, no one will know who he's from. This can't be something. Today's day and age, we would say, are you telling me that all these other people who believe what they want to believe are wrong because this man is right? It's the same question. And when Jesus does answer these kinds of questions, he says things like this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. Sounds pretty passive, doesn't it? Not a chance. Jesus is subversive. Jesus looks and says, I'm not going to stoop to the level of your conversation, though I love you. Let me pull this up. You want to know what I'm doing with my life. I'm bringing light into the world. Here's the reality. Jesus was mostly just interested in just telling them, here's what it's like where I'm from. You see, when we squeeze the way of Jesus into and under any current kingdom's morality and norms, we're settling for this temporary relief of human acceptance over an eternal spirituality of thriving freedom. Whenever we squeeze who Jesus is into some temporary thing, because we want to sound a certain way or be accepted to the norms, Jesus is like, you're taking a subversive, powerful God and limiting him. Your longing will continue if you do that. It just will. When you look for the solution of a, in, in a system or a thought or belief or human organization, that longing will continue. But here's what this beautiful man, this beautiful God, this incarnational God continues to say. Let me tell you what it's like where I'm from. He does this in stories, but he also does this in his actions. He tells us one story about a, how the posture of people, 
how where he's from responds. There's a story, Luke chapter 18, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. The extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What Jesus is saying, where I am from, the dominant culture of the Pharisees was upstaged by the outcast. That's what it's like where I am from. In regards to healing people, In Luke chapter five, but they could not find a way to take him in because of so many people. They made a hole in the roof over where Jesus stood. Then they let the bed down with the sick man on it before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. What Jesus is saying is where I am from, the dominant culture, the physical need was upstaged by the heart of the heart need reconciliation with God. Forgiveness happened before physical. You see, that's what matters where Jesus is from. And in the midst of these cynical statements and questions, Jesus starts to declare these kinds of things. John 8, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. In John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have come, overcome the world. Then, after Jesus accomplishes what he came to do, he emphasizes something over and over and over, and I want you to hear this. You now have a new position with God. The end result of me coming and doing what I came to do, the reason we even long for Advent, the reason that this is a subversive push against the things of this world is that you now have a new position with God. Your longing has met peace. And this isn't just peace, the, the, the emptiness of things that wor- you worry about, but a new position with God. Listen, listen to this. At the empty tomb. Now I know some of you are like, that's Easter. Well, you're invited back to come to Easter as well. At the empty tomb, Jesus is risen. He's sitting there. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? What Jesus is saying is, your tears are coming from a place of loss. What I have done with my life fills that place of longing. Scene number two, the disciples are hiding. They're behind locked doors after Jesus had risen from the dead, hiding from the oppressors. Jesus shows up. Comes walk through the wall, John 20. Jesus came and stood among them. 
I mean, this is just all of a sudden he's like, hello, and said to them, peace be with you. This isn't just a greeting. This isn't just a personal opinion, but a new reality. Peace has now filled the longing. The longing that was there when the Roman people were oppressing. The longing that was there when religious societies were formed to gain their own control. And he keeps saying this over and over after the resurrection. John 20, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. John 20, 26, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You see, in the face of this oppressive, dominant culture that has challenged his validity with where are you from? What are you going to do with your life? Who do you think you are? Jesus always maintained this purpose. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. In a world, my friends, today of skyrocketing anxiety, Jesus gives this message. So how do we experience this? Let's just get down to the nuts and bolts. Like, I know I see the songs about peace. I say have peace, but it's so hard to hold on. Some of you may know that um, I've been blessed to have a ministry in Rwanda where uh, I've gone five or six times and I'm hoping to go in a couple of months again. And my daughter Anna often travels with me and they often don't know what hit them when Anna shows up. <laughs> Anna showed up last time and they wanted her to do children's ministry. So like 85 kids showed up and it was Anna and the interpreter. Oh no, by day three, there was 450 kids and Anna and the interpreter. And I walked in, I'm like, you okay, Anna? She goes, what am I gonna do? So she blew up some beach balls and she's like, knock yourself out. But we do a lot of things there. And one of the things that the, I do a lot of training and talking to pastors and develop, but they always like to do these festivals where it's like an outdoor sharing of the gospel, out, like a crusade outside, an evangelistic time. They set me up in this village, um, and I know I've told this story in the past, but it just is so tangible to this experiencing real peace. This was, um, I was where they, they set me up to speak was literally in the middle of a road and like motorcycles would drive by as I'm speaking. And like there was people on one side of the road and the other side of the road. If you don't believe me, Lisa has seen pictures. It's, it's what really happened. And they don't really know how to have, run a sound system. I think everything is blown. So it's like red level distorted and they have all these choirs saying, and they're doing their best, but you wouldn't really buy the album. And there's this moment where the sound was just so blown and bad. I put my arm around my daughter. I'm like, you know, some speakers get some of the best bands in the world before they speak. This is what your dad gets. She's like, I'd have it no other way. I'm like, well, I could think of a few other ways, but whatever. So I'd go and I just would preach. And my friend Bracious, who's a pastor, would interpret for me. And then after one of the nights, bunch of people came forward to accept Jesus. And we got in the van to leave, and my friend Bracious was just bubbling inside. He's like, Pastor Dale, 
you know what happened tonight? And I'm like, I don't know. I was in the middle of a road talking about Jesus. He's like, there's a man who came forward. Let me tell you his story. You see, this man grew up in this village. And we were like in the middle of Rwanda, in the middle of, yeah, this small little village, very remote. This man grew up in this village, and he was known by everybody, and he actually um, got kind of a scholarship to go to college, and he got educated, one of the very few in the whole village to get an education. He then got a job with the mayor, which was a big deal, and people revered him and loved him. All of a sudden, this man had more money than he should have had. Turns out that this man found a way of embezzling money from the government. And in a very prodigal son's story, started to spend all this money and have all these things. And he actually stopped telling people where he was from because he was embarrassed of his village. And he would look down upon them because he had all of this stuff and he was embarrassed and he wouldn't come back nor help and spoke poorly of them. Well, he got caught, found out that he was stealing money and he got fired. So he lived homeless on the streets because he didn't feel like he could come home. So finally he came home to his village in shame and he lived with his mother. That man came forward tonight to receive Jesus. I was blessed. I was excited. I've seen people come to know Jesus. It's always amazing to me that I could talk about Jesus and people's eternity is then changed. That's mind-blowing to me. That was nothing compared to what happened the next day at church. The next day at church, once we had finished the third hour of the service, one time I spoke in Rwanda and they were like, that was really good. Do another one. That's never happened here. <laughs> Just saying. I don't want it to either. I was, I was really tired. My, friend, my pastor friend, Bracious, talks for a while, and all of a sudden, this man came up. It was a man who gave his life to Jesus. And... His wife was telling me what was happening and this man said that he wanted to come in front of the church and apologize and repent. And there, there was this moment where he's just sharing what he had done and he just asked for their forgiveness. And the church started singing a song. And it was a song about the prodigal son. And it was a song about God's forgiveness for this man. And this man wept, and his mother wept. And then the elders of the church, one by one, came up to this man, and they hugged, and they would go forehead to forehead, which was a sign after the genocide that we are at peace. It is a sign that the opposing tribes that were killing each other would do as a sign of peace. They came to this man and put head to head. They said, we love you. You are now one of us. I had never seen that before. I'd never seen such a tangible sign in a church or anywhere 
where a man said, I have given my life to Jesus, I was wrong, and people reached out and physically pulled him in. They took an offering that day of people who have nothing to give to this man who had even less. He was experiencing in that moment heaven on earth. He was experiencing when Jesus said, where I am from, this happens. He saw the tears of his mother. He felt the embrace of the people welcoming him in. He heard the words of forgiveness and acceptance in a song sung to him. He smelled the aroma of God's people together and he tasted the goodness of God as he broke bread again with the people he had hurt. My friends, that's how we experience peace. It's the incarnational followers of Jesus giving peace to one another for what Jesus has done for them. So I guess my point in all of this, when a longing or a burden shows back up in you or upon you. This season can still be a joyful, hopeful, and a peace-filled time. When I value you by looking in your eyes, when I care for you by opening up my arms and opening up my hands, and when I bring healing to you by speaking words of joy of hope and peace towards you. See, this is how I direct the fire of God that's created in me towards you. And that's how you direct the fire of God that he created in you back to me. Because Jesus says, where I am from, my followers have become my body. And when someone lacks peace, they come and they experience the peace of God from somebody else. That's Advent. That's Christmas. It's subversive. It's powerful. And it's available. Let's sit for a moment before God and just listen to his words for us. We have a time before, at 9.15, anyone's invited, but we take some time just to pray, and there's a group maybe of 20 people here this morning, and we opened our hearts to God, and we said, God, what do you have to say? Some of the things that God was revealing to people about today is that there are some coming today that know God, but they don't really know how to experience him. If that's you, I think God was talking about you. He knows you, he sees you, and he wants you to feel his peace today. Others were saying that God has called us to be lights, like the, we lit up the tree, but we're called to be a light to this area. For some of you, God's talking to you and saying, man, look at people in the eyes. Open your hands to them, whoever they are. 
Let God just speak to you in a few moments here. Father, we love you. Jesus, thank you for being, it sounds weird, thank you for being who you are. You are brilliant, you are strong. You, you cut the kingdoms in half and said, Advent is here, I am here. I am above and beyond these things. And yet you draw us in. I pray that we are a people who are willing to go forehead to forehead, eye to eye, arm in arm, so that no one ever leaves here not knowing and experiencing your peace that you give us, Father. Jesus, thank you for accepting the praises of your people. Jesus, we declare that you are Lord of all, that the kingdoms of this earth, man, they seem powerful in front of us, but they are nothing compared to like where you are from. A place of forgiveness and love and elevating those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, those who have been disregarded. Those are the ones that you say, blessed are you. I pray that we will continue to look at each other in the eyes and open our hands and hearts to each other so that your peace would be experienced by your people because of our love for one another. We love you in your name. Amen. Let's just praise God together for a few moments. Amen. 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 I'm telling you, me and that dog got it going on. God bless you guys. My hope, a few weeks ago, I talked about how the church is supposed to be a slice of heaven here on earth. My prayer is that when you come, you're able to experience the peace of God from his spirit, from, from each other as well. So may God bless you. May his peace reign wild within you. And don't hold that in. Let it go to somebody else. I'll see you. What day is Christmas Eve? I know it's the 24th. Saturday. Saturday at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock right here. Invite someone. God bless you. Have an amazing week. I can see the problem.